You're listening to Veg Your Best. My name is Michelle Olander, and I'm a life coach. I use the tools I've learned through coaching and other modalities to support people as they start, restart, or re-energize their vegan and plant-based practices. Because there has never been a more important time to be vegan. This week, episode 112, Vegan History with Avery Yale Camilla. Welcome, everyone. Welcome and welcome back. You will hear you will hear some congestion and some nasality in my voice, I'm assuming. I'm assuming. But I call many of you my veg your besties, and I know you'll bear with me on this one because you've been along for the ride, all 112 episodes, and I've gotten to know a lot of you to some degree, and a number of you, a number of you have honored me by getting in touch and talking about your goals, your struggles, your ideas, and I, I want you to know how much that has enriched my life in a way I can't even describe. And you know, today's conversation um, is one of those opportunities I've been blessed with in this work. I get to meet very interesting people, and today's guest, Avery Yale Camilla, is someone who is helping us see the world and our place in it with new eyes. She's a journalist and a researcher of Maine's hidden vegetarian history, and I'm really looking forward to you all getting to know Avery Yale Camilla. She grew up on a dairy farm and, among many other pursuits, writes the Vegan Kitchen column for the Portland Press-Herald in Portland, Maine. Now, one of my soapboxes is, I have a few, and you pro- if you've been listening, you know, but one of my many soapboxes is supporting our local journalists and newspapers. And I think, after you listen to Avery talk about the work she has done, the stories she's unearthed, literally, you will want to underwrite or maybe even get involved yourself in ferreting out important issues and historic contexts in your hometown. You know, being vegan is a point of view and an ethical position, and it is far more than recipes, as I think you're going to see in our conversation that ranges from businesses to school lunches to soft serve ice cream and the Wabanaki Confederation, a group of First Nations people whose civilization stretched across Northeast, what we now call the United States, and included the area we now call Maine. Does that sound like a wide-ranging conversation? So I will get to it right now. We're going to include many of Avery's links and contact info in the show notes. But for now, I hope you'll just enjoy getting to know Avery Yale Camilla. Avery Yale Camilla, welcome to Veg Your Best. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I've been following your work mostly via Instagram, and my virtual assistant, uh, Nancy, is uh, actually a Mainer. And oh. she, uh, I, I think the first time I heard about you was she sent me a, an article 
um, that you that you wrote. Oh, that's so awesome. So that's one of my connections there with you. So even though I'm a New Englander, uh, born and bred, uh, I didn't know your work, I think, until she mentioned it to me. So I would like I would like nobody else to have to go without knowing about your work. <laughs> oh, thank you. So tell me, I'd like you to introduce yourself to my audience and tell me you're a journalist. You mm -hmm. do much more than just journalist, uh, journalistic work. So, but introduce yourself uh, to my audience, please. Well, my name is Avery Yale Camilla and I'm a journalist in Maine. I have written a vegan food column for the Maine Sunday Telegram, which is the largest newspaper in Maine. Uh, since 2009. Um, so I've been doing that for, for quite a few years. And um, there aren't very many um, such columns like this. Uh, very, very few. Um, generally, newspapers do report on vegan and vegetarianism, but it's not a regular thing. So it's really been a privilege and an honor to have this opportunity here in Maine. Maine has a huge vegan and vegetarian community and um, always has. And I think that's what we're gonna talk about a little bit, but I've been uh, writing for for the modern uh, vegetarians here in Maine and um, you know people who are interested in the sort of food stuff I write. So Avery, what do you think having someone who's dedicated to this topic in the newspaper in Maine, how do you think that is different than having somebody who occasionally covers it. What do you think happens differently for the readers of the newspaper? Well, I think that one thing that that I'm able to offer in my column that is different from just a food journalist writing a story about a particular topic is that because I cover this as my beat, um, I find out about things that you know people wouldn't know about if they were just dipping in here and there to, to write about it. Um, but at the same time, I write about it from the point of view of a vegetarian. Now, a vegetarian's point of view is often wildly different from somebody who's not a vegetarian. So I'm able to bring that because I write it as a column. Um, the columns are often very newsy. I write about news things, but I write it from my point of view rather than you know the third person newspaper reporter's point of view. So I think that that personalizes it and also adds a depth to what I can cover that somebody who was covering food in general across the state is not going to be able to pick up on a lot of the things that that I've been able to, to report upon. For instance, this summer, I wrote a story about the rise in vegan soft serve ice cream in Maine. Maine is a huge ice cream state, tons of ice cream everywhere. You know, tourists come here in the summer by the millions. Everybody wants ice cream. Well, in the last, you know, I would say, I don't know, five years or so, vegan ice cream at ice cream scoop shops has really increased in Maine significantly. Um, and then this year, all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch of scoop shops offering vegan soft serve, which is different. It's that kind that comes out of the machine and the little uh, twirly sort of thing. Um, so, you know, some people like that rather than the hard serve. And so that was something that I was able to pick up on this summer and write about that if without the connections that I have, a reporter wouldn't have been able to spot this as easily. So it's that sort of thing that I can that I can kind of ferret out and um, share with my readers. So I find that very interesting because when I was um, looking into your work, you, because of your kind of dedicated niche in in the topic, you are able to talk about Maine's history. You can talk about 
the economics of the self-serve or a soft serve or ice cream for tourists. So that's an economic and business topic. And also you've, you've covered, um, uh, children's lunches in the, in the main schools. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I've done a that, lot of writing about that. So that is, I, I'd love you to talk a little bit about what your, what your work um, accomplished in that area, but I just, I'd like my uh, listeners to hear that's a big scope for just what might sound like a niche uh, topic of vegan vegetarian um, uh, affairs in, in, in just in Maine even. So I'd love, so it's such an, exp I think sometimes people think, oh, that's very um, fringe, very small, very niche, as I say. And I don't say niche in a bad way. I, I, I like niche. I think it's important to uh, focus, but um, just for my listeners to understand, this is not just recipes and trying to not use uh, eggs in baking. This is very, very different. So please tell me a little bit about um, the more the more current work you did about school lunches in Maine. Well, I've, I've written a number of stories about school lunch in Maine and, and what the schools offer. I live in Portland, Maine, uh, which is the largest city in the state and also is a huge hub of vegan and vegetarian activity. Um, the schools here have had a, a vegetarian lunch on their menu since I don't know more you know maybe about 15 years or something they've they've had one of those might have been, might even be longer it might be about 20 years um however that was a cold lunch and it was mostly um uh string cheese sticks and you know it wasn't vegan so it was mo it was based on cheese I um when my son was entering kindergarten in 2018, I wrote a column basically saying, you know, how strange it was for him to be entering the public school system after going to nursery school and being in the whole kid world where everything is very veg friendly. It's all hummus and carrot sticks and, you know, nobody's bringing out beef sandwiches to children or anything like that. But the Portland public schools, they serve beef all the time. They don't ser serve pork. They don't serve any pork because we have such a diverse uh, community here and a lot of, you know, re religions don't eat pork. Um, so they don't serve pork, but they serve beef every day. So that to me seemed really shocking. So I wrote a column about it saying like, look at all this beef on here, like for five-year-olds, like, what is this? And, um, you know, we've got this real vegetarian culture and we're just pumping out beef hot dogs every day. And I said, you know, where's the, the vegan lunch now? Um, a lot of people hooked onto that column. I think there was a Reddit <laughs> thread that it started. Um, and they were not, they were not happy with me. They had all sorts of choice words for me and what I could do with my son and my lunches. However, they don't matter. The people who matter are the school board and the superintendent, and they all agreed with me. And so it took a while and it took a lot of meetings with the food service director, but Portland now has daily vegan hot lunches on the menu for all the elementary school students. So I think today's uh, lunch is a veggie burger. So they, I'm not sure what the the meat lunch is, but there's a there's an you know probably a hamburger and then a veggie burger. They usually kind of do the same sort of thing. But every day, my son can go to school and like every other kid, get a hot lunch, and you know it's it makes it normal. It makes it you know he doesn't feel you know different. Um, it helps support the school lunch program because you know I understand that it's important. To support the school lunch program, we don't want to stigmatize hot lunch and school lunch because there are so many children that rely on this. This is essential food. 
and we need to make it better. There's so many things that need to be improved about um, school lunch and hot lunch and adding a vegan option is is a major way for schools to head in that direction. So that's fascinating. And it's just by bringing up a conversation which other people took took and ran with, right? Mm -hmm. It was, right. Yeah. yeah. So since it's today is Indigenous Peoples Day, um, when we're recording this, we can now kind of maybe toggle back to kind of show the breadth of your work. Uh, this is current school lunches is now now today in Portland, Maine, uh, public schools. But you've also in your work uncovered um, a long history of vegetarianism and veganism and also among the indigenous people of New England. The Wabanaki tribe. So in Maine, um, it's the Wabanaki, and that's a that's encompasses a number of different tribes. But that's the it's the Wabanaki Confederacy, and so that represents the the group of the group of the the tribal nations that um, that are still in Maine, and they're still located in Maine. Right, right, and there, you know, there's there's all sorts of people with uh, Wabanaki ancestry um, in New England. Um, the most most well known Native Americans in New England are probably the Wampanoags in Massachusetts, who are are the the people that the Pilgrims encountered when they sailed into into uh, this part of the world. Um, so in Maine, it's it's the Wabanaki, and um, you know they have their own history and. Um, there's tons of stuff we could talk about, but one of the things that that I find, well, two things, I'll talk about two things. In exploring vegetarian history in Maine, what I encounter time and time again is historical erasure. So vegetarians are a, a minority group, we're a marginalized group, and vegetarians are also social change agents. They're, they're part of a movement to change the world. You know, we're not just sitting around saying, we just want to eat our, our vegetarian food. No, vegetarians are out there trying to get other people to do it. So it's a social change movement. Social change movements, historians don't like that. They don't want anything to change. You know, So, so people who are part of a marginalized group or part of a social change movement face historical erasure. So vegetarians have faced historical erasure and the Wabanaki people and all other indigenous people face the same historical erasure within the archive. Um, so they, there's a similarity there. Now I found no no historical tradition of vegetarianism among the, the Wabanaki tribes um, here in Maine. However, there are many Wabanaki who today are vegetarians. But what I have found in the history is some very interesting things that have also been written out of history books and the archive. One of them is that in Maine, you will find repeated throughout history books that the the indigenous people here were hunters and gatherers, hunters and gatherers, hunters and gatherers. I mean, I've read this so many times, hunters and gatherers. Okay, fine, they did hunt and they did gather and they fished. However, what that erases is the female agricultural society that existed here in what is now Maine, prior to European colonization. So the women were the farmers, they were in charge of agriculture, they were oper they were cultivating huge, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of acres of cropland here in Maine, growing corn as the staple crop was all over the state. Now the the men were not the farmers, it was the women. They were they were farming 
And they were also the ones who controlled the trade and controlled the money. Now, I can just imagine a man from Europe showing up here in, you know, the 16th century, 17th century, 18th century, on and on. What are they going to, how can they even process that? Like women who are in charge of agriculture and trade and money and oh, also decision-making, you know? So, so they just, all they can do is just write them out. So we, there's this long erasure of the agricultural tradition here in Maine and the replacement with the hunter and gather, a hunter gatherer kind of um, replacement narrative. The other interesting culinary thing that I've discovered is that the ancestral Wabanaki, when the Europeans showed up here, they were they were you know using all the resources around here and they were you know growing corn, but they're also they cultivated nut forests. So all of Maine, from the historical record, at least along the coasts and the rivers, seems to have been cultivated as a nut forest over generations. Now. Anybody who knows the history of Maine knows that we became a logging state. The whole state was cut to the ground and logged in order to build, you know, British ships and et cetera, et cetera. So those nut forests are gone. They were clear cut. And one of the things they were doing with those nuts is that they were making an infant formula long before Europeans ever had any dreams of making an infant formula. They made a successful one that was made with finely ground walnuts, which are probably the white walnut, which is native to this part of the, the country, um, finely ground cornmeal. And that cornmeal may have been roasted. And then that was boiled all up together to create a milk. And that was fed to the babies. And that could that could save a baby whose mother could not feed it. So there's that very interesting tradition, which I find fascinating. But there's also, a, you know, at the same time, a tradition of making nut butters and nut cream and nut cheese from nuts and sunflower seeds and, you know, maybe other things. Um, they, in here in Maine, uh, we have birch trees and birch trees have a natural uh, preservative antiseptic kind of thing in, in the birch. So if uh, the Wabanaki ancestors made a birch bark container and stored their nut butter or nut cheese in it, it would last because there was a preservative in the wood. So they could have that without refrigeration and they might've fermented it like people did today. I don't know, you know, most of this is lost, um, lost to time in terms of what, you know, ancestral Wabanaki people were making and how they were making it. But there are bits and pieces that survive in the archive. And that's that's what what I've I've discovered. And I find that really fascinating um, because those are both female centric traditions, both the, the farming and then, you know, the culinary preparation just wiped right out of history. Um, and instead, we're told that, you know, milk from cows is is the, you know, the natural milk that we all should be drinking and is what, you know, people have been doing since the 1600s. Well, since the 1600s, but long before that, people were drinking another kind of milk that was based on walnuts and corn and sunflower seeds. Well, that's fascinating. And it also it also begs the question, perhaps in in even in European and other cultures, were people historically making certain other kinds, certain similar types of uh, cheeses and nuts and dairies and using the materials in a different way? Because the other erasure you're talking about is the erasure of these forests, of these uh, these nut forests, which is fascinating. I I know um, I, I always think of nuts 
as being kind of a specialty crop. So something that that requires a certain amount of uh, specific um, husbandry and care. And so the idea that they could have been um, all over the the rivers and coasts of Maine, that's just amazing, beautiful, Mm -hmm. a beautiful image. It's it's really interesting, and and you know it's it makes me sad when I think about you know what has happened here. But at the same time, you know we're we're all here today, and you know the best thing that we can do going forward is try to figure out you know what has been erased from our past. What how can that inform us going forward? So you know the more that we know about our history, the the better choices we can make in the future. Because if we're just operating on well, you know people have always been drinking cow's milk. That's just normal, natural, and necessary. And there's nothing strange here. Well, that's not the case. That was a new thing in the 1600s on this soil. And there had been other you know dairy products. I'm sure they weren't called dairy products. You know, but there were there were other foods that were used in a similar way. And so now when people say, oh, you can't call a plant-based milk milk, I think that's a really weak argument, whether you're looking at language, seeing the word for milk and lactate comes from the Latin, you know, which, which doesn't doesn't mean milking a cow it means a milky white substance that could come out of a plant um so there's a long history and you said in europe there there's a was a history of of um, almond milk during uh the middle ages almond milk was the thing in europe that's what all, all sorts of people were using was almond milk and making it you know in their kitchens and then using it in dishes um so there's a long tradition all over the world of of milks that are not from animals um that are are really the the historical historical milk and this whole idea of drinking cow's milk is a brand new thing particularly fresh cow's milk nobody was drinking fresh cow's milk until until like the the late 1800s early 1900s um, because you can't, the thing with cow's milk is you have to live right next to that cow to drink it. Um, and, you know, people were living in cities. And so unless they lived on a farm, they couldn't drink this. So it's, it's, it's when you start getting uh, dairies built in cities, um, which created a whole huge problems because you had these chained cows standing in their feces and then being milked. And they were often fed really terrible food that was often like the, the leftovers of breweries and all kinds of stuff. It was real gross. And so they bred all sorts of zoonotic diseases. And then that's why you get tuberculosis from the milk and all these other things. Um, So it was real gross. And um, that's as a result of that, people are like, well, this is gross and everybody's getting sick and babies are dying. What are we going to do? There were two camps. One camp said, well, why don't we clean up these farms and you know make it all really clean so that this milk will be pure and clean and not contaminated the other camp said well why don't we just pasteurize the milk the dirty milk and kill the pathogens well obviously the pasteurization camp won and so that's what we have today um i grew up on a dairy farm and i saw in the little tubes where the milk comes out of the, the cows tubed up into this big tank out in the milk room and in those clear tubes you could see what was coming out sometimes it would be red when the milk was a little bloody because they had an infection sometimes it'd be a little greenish from the pus it often had flecks of brown now that was from the poop that all goes into the milk tank and then it's off and it's pasteurized um but that's disgusting i mean that's that's what's 
you know, that's what's in milk. So people don't want to hear that and they don't want to think about that. But, you know, the Wabanaki didn't didn't have to worry about this. And just like all the other native tribes, they didn't have zoonotic diseases over here because they did not confine animals. Confining animals, messing with their habitat, these are the ways that zoonotic diseases spread to humans. Zoonotic diseases are diseases that can spread from animals to humans. COVID being our most recent example, but it includes every disease that you can think of, tuberculosis, flu, measles, smallpox, chickenpox, diphtheria, on and on and on. They're all zoonotic. So when the Europeans came over with all their diseases, the Wabanaki and the Wampanoags and all the other indigenous people living here had never been exposed to that. So they were wiped out, you know, in these, these pandemics. They weren't killed off entirely, but it really destabilized their societies and caused, you know, tremendous cultural change and upheaval. This is always, my, my background is in, in history, history of art specifically, but it's still all history. And I always think of history very much as a conversation we have with the contemporary historian, whoever the historian is at the moment, with mm. the past. And that conversation changes each generation or even more frequently. When I was a young woman, there was nothing about women in most histories, and there was certainly nothing about women artists until uh, the famous book about why are there no women artists, great women mm. artists. And, and so then there's a new conversation. So all of these things, sometimes I think people think, oh, you're all looking for trouble. We're not. We're looking for what's missing, and we're looking for the erasures. And that's where, and we have proven over the last 50 years, how much is still out there for us to look into? Uh, mm -hmm. I've never met a historian that's gone, oh gosh, I've run out. <laughs> there's nothing there for me. <laughs> oh, there's so much. Well, and I think one of the most interesting historical erasures that, that has been exposed and disproven recently is the, um, the cultural myth that the Anglo-Saxons in England, that the elite Anglo-Saxons ate a meat-based diet. And now that has been in every history book going on, you know, a long time, almost a thousand years. We've got that, that myth in the history books. Then just recently, researchers did bone analysis of more than 2,000 skeletons from that period and found that there was no one was eating a, a meat-based diet of you know, animal-based diet. They were all eating cereal grains and that once in a while, the peasants would put on a big feast for the elites that served um, animal bodies. But mm -hmm. everything else is everybody eating cereals all the time and their vegetables, you know, cereal grains, not cereals as we think of them today, but but that's what everybody was eating. So now modern science has has shown that that was a replacement narrative that has been in the historical archive for almost a thousand years. So there's just one, you know, so it's, 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 it's really interesting. I mean, I just feel like from the the work that I've done, I'm very skeptical of a lot of history because I just, you know, I don't know, might be right, might be getting some of the facts right, but what is being left out? What is not being said? Well, the best historians I know always say that's my understanding of the information of the of the research I've got. That's my argument. 
most historians don't go, that's how it was. Right. The best, the best ones. Usually it's it's downstream from historians where people go, well, that's just how it was, because that's what that historian argued. But it's still, it's still that conversation with with the uh with the data, with the research, with the um, I mean, now we have so much, as you're saying, with these uh, Anglo-Saxon bodies recovered, we have tremendous um I'm going to blank on the on the uh, research that they use, but these different spectrum analysis of bones, I think they can look at the little bones in the ear and get a tremendous amount of uh, information about where they were, what they were exposed to, what kinds of um, nutrients they were exposed oh, to. Right. It's mm-hmm. fascinating. It's really it fascinating. Awesome. So it's never done. So if we say, well, that's how it was, that's how we think it was. And we might be right, right. <laughs> but we're unlikely to be fully right. So yeah. th- th- I think that's fascinating. You know, my my mother's uh, my mother's family. Um, we we call ourselves Swamp Yankees or long term uh, English settlers on the East Coast um, from the from the 17th century. And my grandfather had three or four cows. I think at the most he was a subsistence type of farmer, and he would never let his kids drink anybody else's milk because he knew he took care of his cows. He knew that he hand milked them. He didn't like the machines and uh, he sold what he, they didn't need. And he would, he was always like, nope, don't drink any. No, I don't drink any milk. I don't, I don't, um, I'm, I'm gone from that whole product. But even he, as a, as a dairy farmer or as mm-hmm. a farmer was skeptical about how good that would be for you. It's certainly people who had large herds. Right. Oh yeah. That's, that's really, that's really interesting. My mother-in-law in the the 50s she she um contracted tuberculosis from drinking raw milk here in Maine um so yeah so it's I mean it's a very it's a very real threat and the other aspect of milk that that you know kind of makes me think a bit is like where I live in Portland um there are all sorts of um, people of different nationalities and ancestries and backgrounds. And we've had a lot of new Mainers move here, um, asylum seekers, many of them from sub-Saharan Africa. And now if you look at the ability to digest milk after infancy, it's something that's almost exclusively the ability of people with Northern European ancestry, not even Southern European, like Italians, you know, have a hard time with this, but certainly by the time you get down to sub-Saharan Africa, it's almost a hundred percent of people cannot digest this. So now in the schools here, which do a great job trying to feed, you know, thousands of kids a day, they pump out so much milk. Everything is a carton of milk and here's a milk. And you should see how many of these milks don't get drank during the day because kids don't drink milk. I mean, that's one of the things that I find funny about this is like, I know a lot of people with a lot of kids and most of them are not vegetarians, but they're not like feeding them glasses of milk. Like that's what I remember in the seventies the and eighties, like people were given milk, but that's, I mean, I'm sure there's parents who do that, but that's not much of a thing around here. Um, and, but then you go to school and you've got the beef burger and the cow's milk. So it's like, what, what the heck is that? So I th- I find that that is actually a form of racism um, for these kids who have something other than Northern European ancestry, because if they drink that milk, then wh- are they going to sit there with a stomach ache all day? Some people get ear infections um, when they when they drink milk. So there's all sorts of very uncomfortable things that aren't going to help you learn if you just drank a carton of milk. Um, so, you know, I think 
that, you know, and the milk is totally subsidized and we could go on and on about the government policies that are, are putting that into school lunches. But I mean, at its heart, it's it's sort of a, a racist policy because it's just assuming that everybody is of Northern European ancestry, which is just not the case. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. I have to say, when I was a young girl, I had chronic stomach aches and chronic. Uh, my brother had the ear infections. I had the strep throat, and our family physician told my mom, "I think they're, I think they're intolerant to to dairy. I think you because we were given milk all day long. First, my mother considered it a perfect food. Just that was the kind of uh, dietary, uh, nutritional background she had had as a nurse. That's what she had been taught. Mm -hmm. And I remember even when the doctor said it to her, she goes, that's nonsense, because that's how completely right. immersed she was in that, in that belief system. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, uh, it's, it is as, and I, you, you, you use the same quote that, my, um, I have another guest, uh, who I think when I'm talking to you, she will probably be the week before Melanie joy PhD oh, yeah. is the yeah. one who I think has made popular that idea that animal products are by our society have been made natural, normal, necess natu natural and necessary. necessary. Yes, that, is, that is right out of Melanie yeah. joy's uh, uh, work. Yeah. She's, yeah. she's amazing. Yeah. I think she's fascinating in the way that she kind of unapologetically says we've, incorporated it's in our so if anybody's having trouble and this is what i do as a life coach if people do have trouble moving towards the vegetarian or vegan or plant-based lifestyles that they want to it's not surprising and they need to give themselves a little pass that it's yeah it is hard because we've all been indoctrinated for good reasons and bad but for even for good reasons by people we love most who were worried mm -hmm. about us they thought they were mm -hmm. doing the right thing Right. I don't think anybody's trying to like when I say that, you know, cow's milk is inherently racist when you serve it to school children. I don't think there's anybody out there sitting there going, oh, great. How can I be racist today? No, nobody's doing that. It's just it's it's a system. So when things become systemic, you've got to make a big effort to change it or else you just keep doing the same thing you've always done. And if that's racist, well, then you're still racist, you know, so so that that's where we where we are. But, yeah, I think that Melanie Joy is is really um, a helpful person uh, to look at this kind of stuff. Um, one thing that that I noticed in interviewing vegetarians all these years is that. Long term vegetarians are a special breed of people. I know all sorts of people who've become vegetarian and then they're not vegetarian or they're trying to be vegetarian or they're semi-vegetarian. But as I mentioned earlier, vegetarianism is a social change movement. So when you say I'm a vegetarian, that's all you have to say, or I'm a vegan and you've made a social change statement and your grandmother's mad and the guy over here is rolling his eyes, you know what I mean? And why they're reacting that way, even though they don't know it and you don't know it is because you've just made a statement that you're trying to change things. And um, so, so, you know, so that, that the, the issue of, of long-term vegetarians, why I say they're interesting is because I think it takes a certain personality type. It takes a really tough personality type who can handle all the negative social reactions and continue to just do what they're going to do. People who are people pleasers, you know, if they just live to, you know, please everybody else, they're never going to be a vegetarian. If you're trying to please someone else, you cannot be a vegetarian unless you're living in a vegetarian commune or something, because everybody else around you, the majority of people are not going to be vegetarians. So that's going to be uncomfortable and difficult. But, um, you know, long-term vegetarians, they're, they're, you know, they're not going to be easily, easily persuaded into, um, you know, other, other notions and stuff, because they've got a strong sense of what they're doing. 
But, you know, I think that's why it is so difficult to be a long-term vegetarian and why so many people adopt vegetarianism and then they're not a vegetarian anymore because it's the whole social pressure. Yes. And if they're having trouble, they should call me. <laughs> they should call right. me because this is the work we do. We understand because I think so, so many people think they, that it's because they're weak or because they're lazy, because they're distracted no. or no, it's because our system is not set up to help you. And so right. you can do it. And I, I identify a little bit on the pleaser uh, <laughs> continuum and it was hard for me. And it was why I didn't commit for a long time. And I think I've talked about it a million times, but I called myself an excusitarian for a very long time that I was vegan, unless there was a really good excuse in my head about being with my family or a holiday or a traditional food or travel or something mm -hmm. like that. So, right. and if I could do it, this is my whole message. If I could do it, anybody can get way better at it, can get really, and you can't do that practice without practicing. Right. Failing at it is part of getting better at it, in my opinion. Right. And I would think that, you know, I don't know, you know, what sociologists would say about this, but I would think that, um, you know, women who are not teenagers and in their 20s, you know, people who have established their lives and have families and stuff, they might be better able to do this. Because if you're a woman in this society, um, you've had to face a lot and, you know, to make it make it through and you have you're kind of you got to be a little tough <laughs> to get you know into your middle age and um you know i think that that that's a great time uh for for people to think about this i think i just saw something that in england um there are now more people who are um like baby boomers who are adopting vegan and vegetarian diets and i'm assuming that that might have something to do with health um but i also wonder you know know about you know just the ability of people to to take a stance and hold that stance and you know i know when i was in my 20s um you know it's way it's it's more difficult because you don't have the confidence yet you know as a person you're just still figuring out who you are and what what you're doing and why but you know once you you know get a little older and and have a little bit more confidence in in what you're doing it you know maybe maybe it it would it's easier for people i don't know but i know that there's just tremendous social pressure uh for people to can conform um, absolutely to absolutely and 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 you and back to that melanie joy quote that normal necessary or normal natural necessary those three ends um i i think women of a certain age start to get a little if not cynical, a little concerned, they, they start noticing other things that maybe they were told was normal, necessary, and natural. And they're like, mm, that's not true. Right. <laughs> so you, there's like a little right. wiggle room for many of us as we get, mm -hmm. as we go through all these different life stages with our kids or with our families, with our, with our elderly, with our, with our parents mm -hmm. that are getting older. And we start going, hmm, I wonder if there's a little something different there to look at it differently. Mm -hmm. Now, through your looking at your work, I learned about something I did not know anything about, and that is the Vegan Museum that's in Chicago oh, and the work yeah. you've done there. I would love it if you would tell me a little bit ab about that and tell our listeners. Well, so the Vegan Museum is the only vegetarian museum in all of the United States. Uh, they're in Chicago, and... Um, they're currently, I think, in the uh, Evanston Public Library. So they have an exhibit that moves around and it's often in libraries or university spaces. Um, they would love to get a permanent um, location uh, if they could ever raise the, the funds to do that. Um, they, they, they do programming. Uh, during the pandemic, a lot of it was online, but I think they've gone back to in-person programming now. Um, and... Uh, 
I've been working uh, with the museum to put together a story map of U.S. vegetarian history uh, going back to the the 1700s, and you know, looking at some of the people and events uh, that you know have shaped the vegetarian movement here in the U.S. And so, some of those people are Sylvester Graham, right? Is that is that how I? Oh yes. yeah, Sylvester Graham. He's like. So we remember him today because of graham crackers, of which he would disapprove, because um, they're filled <laughs> with sugar and probably not all you know whole grains. So Sylvester Graham in the 1830s and 40s, he was a massive celebrity. I, I mean, it's just, it's hard to for people to understand this today because back then you don't have internet, you don't have TV, movies, nothing. You know, all people had for entertainment was they could read books, they could read the newspaper, and they could go to lectures and events. And so the lecture circuit was huge back then. There were lectures all the time, every night, you know, in a big city, there's probably a lecture you can go to. And people went to them. They were on science and archaeology and geology and all these different topics um, that people would attend. So Sylvester Graham went all over the Northeast with his lecture tour, um, which was called uh, The Science of Human Life. And he would deliver a month's worth of nightly lectures on all sorts of health reform topics um, that were about, you know, health, about your body, about what to eat, about, you know, every bit of advice that we have today on how to have a healthy life um, is what they were talking about back then. Get enough sleep. Don't be stressed out. Um, you know, eat a good diet. Drink plenty of water. Um, get some exercise. So that was all part of his message. And one of the things that I've discovered that I just can't even believe is not in the historical record. Why don't people talk about this? I mean, it's fascinating. Well, now I know why they don't. But so in 1834, Sylvester Graham is going around. At that time, whole wheat flour is already called Graham flour because of him. Um, so, so his name is attached to there. It's not because he did that or made flour. It's just because he was telling everybody to eat whole wheat flour as opposed to, to refined flour, which was becoming more readily available. Um, and if you refine flour, it doesn't it doesn't spoil as quickly. So that was the the economic motivation to have that that white flour is, is that it could stay uh, fresh longer. So he's telling everybody to eat whole grain bread becomes graham bread. He shows up in Portland and does a month's worth of lectures. Super popular. Everybody's there night after night, huge crowds. For some reason, at the end of the lecture series, this was in June 1834, there was a riot and a group of angry men attacked the church he was speaking in, threw bricks through the windows and made the lecture stop and he had to leave through a back door and he tried, you know, another night he tried to come and do it again and they wouldn't let him and like, so he could never finish the lectures. So what the heck happened? That was reported in every newspaper, all the major newspapers across the country, this riot. People had all sorts of things to say about it, but they never really knew why it happened. Even in the reporting in 1834, what the heck happened? And they were all speculating and like, you know, there's one editor who says something to the effect of, well, I can understand if, you know, Sylvester Graham is trying to cram that brand bread down the mouths of a bunch of husbands. I can understand why they're upset. So everybody is assuming that it's because of his vegetarian message that this riot occurs. Okay, so maybe it was, I don't know. Well, April Haynes, who is um, a scholar, she's she's written about this. And what she discovered 
is that it was not the bran bread in the vegetables that caused the riot. It was another part of his message. So we have to think 1834, women have no rights. They can't, you know, own property. They don't have the rights to their body. You know, think about like just our, you know, Harvey Weinstein, you know, like think about that kind of culture, the Me Too and everything that we know about now. Well, that was all going on back in 1834, except that women had no recourse. You know, if somebody is is trying to, you know, violate your body, what the heck are you going to do in 1834? You know, so there people don't have rights. One of Graham's messages was that in addition to having a temperate approach to not drinking alcohol, you know, eating a better diet, all this stuff, being real temperate, he also said, don't have so much sex. Stop having so much sex. You know, just have it, you know, at most once a month and only do it for procreation. Okay, fine. That's that's a fine message. And that never caused problems when he said that to men. But when he told that to women, ooh, problems. And what I take from that is that if I was a woman in 1834 with no bodily autonomy, no rights, you know, there's, you know, who knows what kind of mix I'm in. Somebody tells me that, that it's healthy to limit your sexual relations, well, that's kind of empowering, you, you know, because then these people who might be harassing you, well, sorry, you know, I've got to protect my health. That's not healthy, you know? So I don't know that it, it actually, you know, protected anybody, but it gave women a power um, that men did not like. So um, April Haynes has, has traced uh, some of the people who, who got up the riot here in Portland, and they were all philanderers, and they had you know, kind of nefarious financial doings and they weren't, you know, they weren't great guys. So that really kind of supports the idea that, that this is, this was why that riot happened is because he was trying to empower women to have control over their body and take control, control of that. And, you know, the certain men did not, did not like that message at all. Well, that's fascinating. And, you know, this is the, the back, the subtext of all my work is that our thoughts are the most that they are the they're they're how all our results happen. What an idea is the most powerful thing in a human in a human life. What we believe, mm -hmm. what we think is possible for ourselves, what we think is not possible for ourselves. And when you are in a culture where you think certain certain uh, decision making about um, your body and about sexual relations is not in your purview, it's not your choice. And then to have even the introduction of an idea of, wait a minute, you mean that's p potentially optional? There's a, mm -hmm. It's possible it could be different? This mm -hmm. is, I mean, this is, this is a lot of people have tried to keep us from lots of ideas over the years. That's oh, fascinating. Really? That is really fascinating. And this is the idea of uh, veganism and vegetarianism in our current day. It is increasingly becoming something we think of as possible, as mm -hmm. potentially possible, which for many of us, for, well, for many of us feels impossible, but for many of us 50 years ago, when people were first, you know, not first, when there was a bigger movement in the seventies of like of vegetarianism, it, it was tough. It was very hard. It was very mm -hmm. hard. You had to just decide. Right, right. And one of the things that I find fascinating, so like the seventies, you're right, like 1970s, huge stuff going on uh, with vegetarianism. A lot of it's traced to Francis Moore LaPay's 1971 Diet for a Small Planet uh, really kicked things into high gear, but there were there were other things happening. Um, but yeah, it, what is interesting is when you see the reporting about vegetarianism in the 1970s, 
it's a fad. Look at this new thing, vegetarianism, the new fad. Well, they say that every time. I mean, I I can show, you know, they, they were saying that a hundred years prior. Oh, look at this fad of these people having, you know, vegetarianism. So every time vegetarianism comes up, people try to label it as a fad or as a diet. Because if you label it a diet in America, that means it's something that's changeable, is not going to last long. You're only going to do it for a short period of time and has no other element to it. God forbid somebody call it a social change movement. You know, that's that's, you know, gets everybody's back up. Um, so, you know, I think that that it is when you're looking at the history, you'll see this over and over again, all these little ways to try to erase the history of vegetarianism. And one of them is to call it a fad fad it's not you know because that says well, well there's not you know two thousand some odd years of history of this this is just some new thing some you know kooky people just came up with yeah i think that i think that's remarkable i'm wondering if you have a um like i don't know reading list but a prescription i know everybody i'm going to be asking them to follow you and follow your work and i'm going to link them also to the vegan museum in, in chicago because i know that they have lots of information there but where would you, um, if you, um, if you were suggesting for the listeners, uh, where they could kind of learn that this is not just a new thing? What's not? It didn't just happen with the new documentaries or game changers. It's not. It's not. You know, I have a complicated relationship with the term plant based. So, but I use it because I think whatever works to help people move in the direction, whatever works. But what? Where would you, um, as a journalist, as a historian, push people to? Uh, to investigate? Well, there are two major books. And um, I was up in my other office with a whole bunch of other books. I could pull them out, but they're not behind me. Um, so there's two major books that are that are histories of vegetarianism in America. One is called um, Vegetarian America, A History. And the other one is called The Vegetarian Crusade. Mm -hmm. And uh, both of those would be a great, a great starting point in order to, to get, you know, an introduction to this history. Um, those are specifically in America. There are other ones that take a more broader view, you know, kind of a more, you know, scope of like Western history of vegetarianism and that sort of thing. But those two are specifically focused on American vegetarian history. That's great. So I'm going to link those in our social media and in the show notes for, for today's uh, oh, episode awesome. with you, Avery. And of course, I'm going to have all your contacts um, in, in there. And uh, and I'm, I'm hoping everybody's going to just uh, maybe ask questions about their local for their local newspapers. Who's covering uh, vegetarianism mm -hmm. and history? Who's 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 covering uh, vegan economics, vegan business in our in our local? One of the great um, concerns I have about our country in general is the um, is our local newspapers. Um, we we ha we have a hard time keeping our local newspapers uh, subscribed to. So also, if this doesn't help Avery, but subscribe to your local newspaper. <laughs> Try definitely, to definitely do it. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, vegetarianism aside, if we want to preserve our democracy, which is now in peril, and we all know this. I mean, newspapers are are one major thing that you know a democracy thrives on is a free press and the ability to get information. Um, and yeah, I would really encourage everybody just to, to, to subscribe to their local paper. You know, you can get online subscriptions now and they're really affordable. Um, so that's, that's a great, a great way, you know, the paper that I write for it, they have online subscriptions and, um, you know, so that, that is a, a really, really important thing. And I think that also, um, you know, people 
asking their local newspaper to cover these things, super helpful. I mean, it's just like, you know, asking the local restaurant to add vegan stuff, ask your local newspaper to cover this more. Um, and the other thing, if any listeners are interested in history, my research here in Maine of the hidden vegetarian history of Maine shows that there is a hidden history of a lot of other states um, that could be pulled out and nobody's done it for any of those states. Those two books that I, I mentioned, you know, those are, are looks at the whole country, but there are quite a few states that seem to have some deep vegetarian history that could be explored from a state uh, based perspective. Um, so I think that's waiting. That's that's waiting there for for people to to jump into that project. Um, at least that's what my my historical research points to. That's wonderful. So everybody's got their marching orders. All you uh, historians or uh, you're taking a break. <laughs> you're raising kids or helping with your elderly or whatever. This there's it's waiting for you. Our our culture, our history is waiting for us. It's up to us to have that conversation with our, our local history, because it's all part of our national identity. And it's all part of, uh, I mean, I know that in terms of the, the local newspapers, I'm very guilty of not knowing who my local, very local decision makers are very often. I, I have to really make an effort to know who are the town managers and the, and the town council people who are actually making really important decisions about how we how we function in our town because we're hijacked by CNN and MSNBC which is great you know Fox News whatever there's there's a lot of information there that's trying to get us mm -hmm. so let's look we may have to work a little harder to find the things that are closest to us right all right right Avery I this was great is there anything else you'd like to share before before I, I let you go I want to be respectful of your time and I know you've got a lot of other history to unearth <laughs> Oh, I'm just so so grateful um, for the, the your time today and inviting me on your show. It's been a been a real pleasure and such a lovely time to chat about all this stuff with you. Well, I'm delighted. Thank you. Thank you so much for making time for us. Oh, thank you so thank much. Thank you, Avery. So, okay, what did you think of Avery Yale Camilla? How much information did you just take in? Now, before I go any further. I want you to know that I have already asked Avery to come back in the new year and talk about just one of her many projects. I think today was like a vegan smorgasbord of nut milks, Native Americans, 19th century vegetarian social reformers, vegan soft serve, school lunch, and so much more. I forgot to even mention that this conversation took place on Indigenous Peoples Day. And Maine is one of those states that no longer has a Columbus Day celebration. They do have the Indigenous Peoples Day. I did not realize that until our conversation. And, you know, I never even got to ask Avery about her work protecting local pollinators and the impact of fertilizer and pesticide legislation in her part of the world. So if anyone thinks that veganism is a niche and fringy, impractical fad, I think that Avery has demonstrated quite the opposite. There is a venerable history that includes economics, politics, feminism, cultural history, environmental protection, health, education, land management, public school systems, and other areas of social justice. I want to thank you all. 
I want to thank you all for listening and joining me here today and in general supporting Veg Your Best. And I thank you for all the kind messages and great ideas you've shared with me across these 112 weekly episodes. Sticking with me has given me the opportunity to reach out to more and more people to come in and discuss their ways of being vegan and vegetarian and plant-based with us. So next week, I'll be back from Italy, and I'll be back with a solo episode, which I hope will include some thoughts and lessons learned from traveling in Italy as a vegan. But until then, all of you, veg your best. Veg Your Best podcast production, music, and editing by Charlie Weinshank. Thanks, Charlie. Before you go, it would mean so much to me and the Veg Your Best team if you would hit subscribe, leave us a five-star review, or share with someone you think might be interested. Something about algorithms, it helps bump us up a little in the rankings, and that's the best way to help others find the podcast and for us to find our audience. So, until next week, make it easy and veg your best.